There we go. All right. Um, I like to not stand behind the pulpit so that I can see you more clearly. <laughs> well, any questions? We, every one of those points could be a sermon in and of itself, so we had to fly through them. But uh, no questions? I answered them all. Wow. <laughs> more comment. Um, I noticed your preaching style is kind of like Martin Lloyd-Jones. You just kind of wrap everything together and bring it all home every time, but you kind of go through and hit lots of points in the Bible. I like it. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> Martin Lloyd-Jones, wow. <laughs> Over here, Tim. Hi, Jerry. Hi. Uh, one of the things you said this morning about when Adam sinned, we inherited uh, that sin. Yes. Are there other specific, I don't know the words I'm trying to use here, inherited sins that are generational sins that we inherit? Are there generational sins that we inherit? So you mean like if your father was an alcoholic, do we become an alcoholic, that type of thing? Yeah, that'd be a pretty, yeah, basic analogy, but yeah. You know, I, I can't, I don't know where the text is, but I think uh, in one of the prophets where it says we are responsible for our own. Um, so while it is probably true that if your parents were alcoholics, you're maybe going to end up that way, but uh, we're held responsible for our own and certainly can break that, that bondage. Yes, just let me, since nobody's volunteering to raise up their hand too quickly here. <clears throat> um, yeah, you know, once Adam sinned, we all inherited his sin, and as a result of that sin, we are all in bondage to sin. Our wills are in bondage to sin. That doesn't mean that we can't choose. The problem is, is that we always choose out of our sinful nature. So we're always going to pick that which is sinful. Like for instance, if you put before a lion a bowl of vegetables and you put in front of him a bowl of meat, which he's free to choose either one, which is he gonna choose? He's gonna choose the meat every time, why? Because that's his nature, he's a meat eater. He's free to choose either one. And so it is with human beings, is that we're free to choose God. The problem is we're never going to do it unless the Spirit of God is working in our hearts to liberate our wills so that we willingly choose Him. I uh, forgot one of the illustrations I wanted to use. Again, since somebody's raising their hand quickly here. Um, I, I wanted to, you know, just sort of the... Uh, greatness of our God it, it, you know to get our minds wrapped around that obviously is a difficult thing to do um, and so we sort of have to go from what we know and uh, as I think about the immensity of God and so forth I was thinking about this illustration is that uh, when many years ago we were out in Arizona so if you're out in Arizona you have to go see the Grand Canyon and as we are driving up to the south rim of the Grand Canyon, you're driving along, as I recall, again, this is many years ago, there are ravines along the way, and you go, they're quite impressive. 
And then you see the Grand Canyon. And everybody's seen pictures of the Grand Canyon, but when you see the Grand Canyon, there's only one word to describe it. It's grand. And uh, so it is with our God. If that is true when we see the Grand Canyon, how much more when we comprehend the greatness of our God? He's awe-inspiring, to be sure. Jeremy. Do you have any practical suggestions or tips for those of us who day by day struggle with a big, awesome God? Like, I'm just picturing someone might be sitting here. Okay, I see Isaiah's response. I, I, that's not where I'm at today. What, what could someone struggling to see this do to, to get a bigger, more awesome picture of God that practically creates reverence? Right, good question. Well, you know, the most obvious one is just uh, the Word of God. Uh, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to help us uh, comprehend the greatness of God. And reading uh, part, parts of the scriptures that deal with the greatness of God, like, for instance, Isaiah chapter 40, uh, is one of the great chapters about the greatness of our God. And um, it's, a, it's one of the great chapters of the Bible. And I assume everybody here has read that repeatedly. Uh, but in many churches, uh, parishioners would never probably approach the book of Isaiah. And uh, so, you know, in many ways, the Old Testament paints pictures of the greatness of God that even the New Testament doesn't, unless, for instance, you were to go to the book of Revelation. And so um, and I had a former parishioner once who said, why read the Old Testament? And it's like, the New Testament explains everything better, but it's like, but the Old Testament uh, presents God in a greater way than many times, even in the New Testament. So uh, I would say that the second thing I would say is going out at night, um, especially here in Iowa and seeing the stars, you know, the heavens reveal the glory of God, Psalm 19. And uh, it's just awe-inspiring uh, to those are a couple of things that come to my mind, Jeremy. Yes, my wife said, we haven't seen the stars for 15 years when you're in St. Louis. The city lights prevent you from seeing the stars the way that you would like to. So it's great to be back in Iowa on a night with the, it is clear and be able to see the glory of God in creation. Um, somebody over here? Yes. I just love that thinking too on the what's out there and, and reading like it took the rover seven months to get to Mars traveling that fast and how that's just not even that far compared to what's all out there and right it's hard to wrap your mind around. Right, exactly. You know, my wife took an astronomy class in college, and uh, the professor would take them out at night, and you'd say, see the, the Big Dipper, um, which is, uh, I guess, in our galaxy, Milky Way galaxy, and the professor said, in that space, there are like seven galaxies. 
that you can't see, but just in that little space that you see, there are seven galaxies out there. It's like, that's incredible. And again, our God just simply spoke that into existence, and then he also knows all of the stars by name. He named them all. I can't remember your name. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I mentioned in the sermon, again, raise your hand if you have a question. If not, I have plenty of material here. Um, uh, I, I made mention of the fact that um, in, when I was in St. Louis, uh, ran into Charlie, I call him Charlie the Evangelist. And I've always, uh, I got saved when I was in college and always uh, was willing to share my faith, but Charlie just was uh, on the next level. And uh, there was a gal in our church that said, you need to meet this evangelist. And I go, oh, I had run in with evangelists as a young Christian. They're always pushy, you know, like a car salesman. Anybody here a car salesman? Sorry, sorry. We need those. Um, but uh, very pushy, you know, and so forth. And it's like, I don't want to meet Charlie. And so I met him, and it's like, hey, this guy is pretty cool. Uh, first of all, theologically, he was very deep. And he was just a very engaging, charming guy. And um, he wanted to do evangelism training at our church. And I've been through it, and and many times, and it's like, ugh, I really don't want to do it. And he says, he says, well, we're going to go to the mall. And as I mentioned in the sermon, we're going to do these seven question uh, questionnaires, asking people about it. And I go, I'll go with you, but I am not going to do it. And um, he said, that's all right. You just, he says, you just watch me, and I'll do it. And okay. And I'm thinking, yeah. I mean, if somebody came up to me and said, hey, would you do this? And I'd go, no. So I'm thinking that nobody's going to do this, and so Charlie goes around, and again, he's a very engaging individual, and would say, hey, you know, how are you doing? Would you mind taking a, uh, the seven questions? A survey, yes, I'm, thank you. Uh, a seven question survey, and people would go, okay. <laughs> and so it's like, really? You're really going to do that? And so he would, he would go through the whole spiel, and come to the last two questions, and, he, and he'd go up to the next person, hey, would you mind doing this survey? Hey, sure. And so it's like, okay. Um, and so the next week would come along, and I would say, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do it. And Charlie would go, oh, you don't have to do it. Just watch me. Okay. And so the same thing happened. And it's like, you know, about the third time, it's like, okay, Charlie, I'm, I'm going to try this. And it's like, I bumble and humble along, but because he has a thousand illustrations to illustrate every objection that a person could possibly have, and they all make sense. And one of those is uh, the justice of God, and uh, because people like to think that they can stand before God, and he's just, as I said, just sort of wink their sins away, and that God isn't a just God. You know, he's a loving God, right? That's how most of the world thinks our God is a loving God. He's not a just God, so you don't have to worry about eternal punishment. And so he has this wonderful illustration. He said, imagine that you lived in a community where there was a bully. And this bully was terrorizing the community. He was raping women. He would take steel from you. He'd terrorize. Not only would he terrorize you, but he would smile and laugh and taunt you. Anybody want to live in that neighborhood? No. Nobody wants to live in that neighborhood. We all understand there are people like that. Movies are made about it, like the Equalizer. 
love that movie. Um, <clears throat> and so uh, he says, yeah, would you want to live in that neighborhood? No. Yeah. I've, I've done this with my grandkids, you know, eight years old. Would you want to live in that neighborhood? No. You know, they're more demonstrative than you. And uh, no, wouldn't want to live in that neighborhood. I said, okay. So what if God moved in down the street? You know, God is all powerful. And, um, and so you go and knock on God's door and say, hey, God, there's this bully that is terrorizing our community. And could you come and deliver us? And God goes, no, I'd like to, but I'm a loving God. I don't really get into that. Would you want a God like that? No, no, I, right? You wouldn't, would you? <laughs> you want a God that is going to deal with the bully. And uh, so that is what our God does. We're not innocent. There's some things that fall down there, but we're not totally innocent. But you, start, you get the picture. Everybody gets the picture. That's what, those are popular movies. Taken, Equalizer. Everybody wants the bully to be taken down. Right? Uh, right? Okay, okay. <clears throat> so anyway, uh, it's just an, an excellent illustration to point out to people that God is a just God and he must be a just God and can you deal with a just God? And of course, you know, the moral of the story is we're the bully. We bullied Jesus Christ. We put him on the cross. Uh, because of our sin. So God must deal with us in a just way. So it sort of puts aside that idea that God is just a loving God and he's not going to do anything <clears throat> to us. I think it's so neat to realize <clears throat> what God has done for us. The only way we could ever get to heaven is by his righteousness, and that is given to us, imputed to us, when we believe in him. And it doesn't matter what you've done in your life, how many good works you've done, it's our sin that keeps us out of heaven. And if it wasn't for the righteousness of Christ, we could never enter heaven. And that's just something that's awesome to think about. The righteousness of Christ is given to us as believers. Right. You know, uh, and... Uh, Exactly, Dennis. Um, you know, there's an excellent illustration of the doctrine of justification. That's what you're talking about. <clears throat> the doctrine of justification is that because of Christ's atoning work, we all get it, he suffered for our sins. He paid the penalty in full. And so he removes our sins and he gives us his righteousness. I like to think of it in monetary terms. It's like we were in debt to God a trillion dollars. Jesus paid it off and then gave us a trillion dollars. Pretty sweet deal uh, in monetary terms. But there's an excellent picture of this actually in Zechariah chapter 3 where Joshua the high priest is standing before God and Satan is accusing him and he's in filthy garments which represents our sin. And God takes the filthy garments off and then clothes him in pure white. It's a beautiful picture of justification, taking away of sin and giving us his righteousness. So that if we were to stand before heaven's gate and God were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? Don't say because you love me. It's not going to get you in. What's going to get you in is that I'm clothed with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not that you're going to ask exactly that, but you know. 
that, that if, you under, if you answer that question, you understand the doctrine of justification, which you need to believe. Yes? <clears throat> you brought up dead in trespasses. Could you mm -hmm. expand on that? Uh, what does that mean? And then also, what are the burning coals in verse 6 in that Isaiah passage? Yeah. Um, the dead in trespasses, um, biblically speaking, death is separation, and there are three types of death. One is a spiritual death. In other words, when Adam and Eve sinned and God said, the day you eat of this fruit, you shall die, they didn't die a physical death. Uh, they still lived for centuries. <clears throat> but they did die a spiritual death in that they were separated from God. And... Um, and to wax on that just a bit more, to be now dead spiritually, not only does it mean that our wills are in bondage to sin, it also means that our minds are darkened, we cannot comprehend the truth, our hearts are hardened. And so when it says that we are dead in sin, we are, it's, in, it's impossible for us to uh, understand or acknowledge the gospel. Our hearts are hardened. Uh, because of it, our eyes are blinded by Satan, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And the only thing that can penetrate a hard heart and a blinded eyes is the Spirit of God using the Word of God as we know that causes us to be born again. The second type of death is physical death. This is what we normally think of when the soul separates from the body. And then the third type of death is eternal damnation away from God's presence for all eternity. And the second question, what the burning coals, uh, you know, I just think it represents the atoning work of God. Um, uh, I probably have to do more study on that, but that would be my quick thought on that. Yes. Do you think that we'll ever see a reformation in American Christianity? Uh, say that again. Do you think we'll see a reformation in American Christianity? A reformation in American Christianity. <clears throat> well, this is just my opinion. I think the short answer is I don't think so. Um, I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. It seems that America is sort of following in the footsteps of Europe. And Europe has become very dark spiritually. Other places around the world... Uh, there's been great response to the gospel, but it seems in America, John MacArthur has actually preached on this, I think quite extensively, is that we are under judgment according to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following, and, and I tend to agree with his assessment. Um, I hope that there's a reformation it just doesn't look like it at this particular point. There's some good things that we see, but there's a lot of negativity. You know, again, this is just my mulling in my mind. You can disagree, that's fine. Um, is that there was the church growth movement that was started basically by Robert Schuller and uh, Bill Hybels in Chicago. And so every, every pastor jumped on the bandwagon to be part of the church growth movement. You know, you can 
have a church be thousands of people and do all these wonderful things. <clears throat> I think the church growth movement has sort of waned because uh, just like we we're talking about this morning, the, the full gospel, the full presentation of God isn't being declared in those situations because you don't want to bring out negative things. Well, the gospel is inherently negative if it's going to be preached correctly. <clears throat> and so it, it just sort of seems to me that because of the implosion of our government and I and our, our culture, and I think that that is going to go unabated. I'm not sure anything is going to stop it. That churches is sort of like in the early church where it's 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 a place of sort of an island of refuge in the midst of all this chaos. And so um, I think one of the positive things is hopefully people seeing more the importance of being involved in the local church. And um, anyway, it's my two cents. You don't have to agree with it. Yeah, Jeremy. Try not to do this too often. I, 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 tend, I tend to agree. The, the one good thing about what's going on in our country is it's sweeping the floor of cultural Christianity. Um, I would say that the remnant that remains is purified. The, there was a time when you could get political advancement, cultural advancement by being a biblical believing Christian. Now they'll dox you and cancel you if you're a biblically believing Christian. So the, the positive side is those who remain faithful. To, it, it's clearer to see the distinction between the world and the culture and the remnant is clearer. But yeah, we, we've seen a lot of cultural Christianity melt and evaporate under even the first whiffs of, forget persecution, disapproval. Um, they don't like us anymore. They abandon the faith. And, you know, that's that's uh, that's always been the case, but but there is a remnant. Yeah. You know, I had a professor, Dr. Whitcomb, <clears throat> from Grace Theological Seminary, wrote Genesis Flood, a great scholar, and uh, he just honed in on us that we are to preach the whole counsel of God, not just the parts that are favorable. And um, he was in charge of the Grace Brethren Missions Department. And if anybody sent him a picture of hundreds of people raising their hand, he would tear it up and throw it away. And the reason why is because he didn't want to discourage people who were faithfully preaching the word of God and seeing little results. You don't preach to the crowd. You preach what God wants you to preach. And I've never forgotten that. He's with the Lord now. <clears throat> So when Jeremy's talking about the remnant, is that the wheat and the tares, or is that at a different? No, I yeah I think I mean the wheat is the remnant. Is that what you mean? They're separating the tares out, right? Yeah, I think in the final judgment that is true. But even now, culturally speaking, what Jeremy said, I agree with. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, persecution always shines to those who are truly born again because why are you going to follow Christ if it's not going to be favorable, you know? Sort of like Job's wife, why don't you curse God and die rather than go through all this suffering? So, yeah. Who, who are, what's your name? Owen. Owen. Thanks for your questions. I'd like to see young men. So a lot of mega churches they preach this uh, kind of a, they, they try to get a, a, an emotional response out of their crowd, their uh, congregation. So I just wondered, is it possible to live faithfully without necessarily that being, emotion being involved? Is it can you still be saved and yet not uh, find yourself over overwhelmed with emotion, I guess? Yeah, good question. You know, uh, Jonathan Edwards dealt with this, um, who was part of the Great Awakening in our country, and talking about religious affections. And um, uh, I think, he, I think the, it was the freedom of the will uh, was part of that. And it was the only theological book I ever read that I scratched my head and go, what in the world is he talking about? Um, brilliant scholar. And uh, so yeah, he was dealing, because people were accepting the Lord, or so they, some of them thought, is that what is true uh, conversion and how do you recognize it? Is it an emotional thing? And as I recall, I think his answer was basically, there should be some type of emotional response. But we're all built differently. Some people are more emotional than others. But there's, you know, there's just some people that they're just spontaneous that way. Other people are not. So you have to be careful that you let your emotions determine uh, whether you are saved or not. I, I think a greater indication is I understand the scriptures and I believe this. And I think uh, what it says about me, what it says about Christ, and as a result of that, you know, emotions follow. Uh, because, you know, some days we wake up and there's just a cloud around us and we don't know why. So we sort of have to work through that. And again, my thought is, oh, it's always the word of God in prayer. And so... Um, we hone in on that. But we have to be careful because obviously there are people who have great emotional response and aren't saved. Uh, that's Jesus made that clear. So thanks, Owen. Terry, you started and then ended with that thought, and I'm not sure I have it written down properly. Whatever we think of God is the most important thing about us. Is that right? Whatever we think of when we think of God is the most when important thing. When we think thing, of yes. God. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because it challenged me at that point, um, and I had been thinking about it anyways, is he's the king. And what you talked about today, sovereign but also in the Old Testament, how when I read that, you know, most of my life has been concentrate on the New Testament. The, old, the new covenant is better than the old covenant, you know. And when I read that is how majestic, how when I read the Old Testament, I mean, the first mm -hmm. five books, Leviticus and Exodus and all of it, and Numbers even and all of them, 
It's how majestic God is, how much beauty there was. And then when you hear the coronation um, yesterday, how he's wearing these robes that are tons of gold, you know. And I'm thinking, oh, and, and our God is like times 200,000. Yeah. You know? And mm -hmm. it's, it's just um, more like what you, what you said. And I think in America we have, n well, what impacted me is I have no idea of serving a king, yeah. what a king is about, because we're too much, don't tread on me, independence uh, from the get-go. Right. And we don't have any idea what it's like to be subject to anybody. Right, yeah. So yeah, I don't know. Good. It Very bothers, good. and that's what it's, the Holy Spirit's working on me, but um, I have a feeling that's our culture, too. Yeah, yeah, very good. Oh, no, don't give him the mic. <laughs> what are you going to say, Greg? I just, I just had a few comments about this morning's sermon. <laughs> No, I was I was thinking uh, you, you, you've, our discussion was a little bit been about the decline in our in our country as to uh, what belief in Christ means and and just the number of people that uh, think of themselves as believers and 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 just how God is being impugned more and more in our country and in a sense it just occurred to me this morning. This is going to be honoring to God as time goes on because right now I think still something like 60% of the country thinks of themselves as believers and they are not. Many of them, most of them are not. And so God is being painted with that brush of who those people are and people around them know them not to be particularly honorable people, and so they think well, that must be what God is promoting. But as time goes on, the number is going to shrink to the real believers. And while many of us don't want to be held up maybe as as reflection of who God is, I'm afraid, more and more of us are going to, uh, true believers are going to be all that's left uh, in uh, who, who will claim to be Christians in this country. And, and God's uh, righteousness is going to be elevated as a result of all that persecution. And, and that's one way we should look at it. You know, not that, yes, we're going to be persecuted. Yes, it's not going to be fun for a Christian living in the United States. It's going to be sad to watch it crumble around our feet. And yet, as time goes on, Christ is going to be glorified more and more and more as there is as a direct result of of that falling away. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it makes me think of Daniel, I think chapter 12 where it talks about in a time of turmoil God's people are going to shine ever brighter. Um, you know, uh, I've been to Uganda and um on a missionary trip and by the way uh, I was an anomaly because I had gray hair. Uh, there are very few people in Uganda that are older than like 40 years of age. 
because so many have died from AIDS. <clears throat> and, um, and now uh, also the, the Christians are being persecuted. Wherever we went, we had to have an armed guard with us. And uh, because the Muslims would like to kidnap people and then hold them for ransom and uh, to get money. And I was afraid that my church would give them nothing. So, <laughs> so I stayed real close to the armed guard. Um, but yeah, you know, a, a lot of places around the world, this is just normal for them. And uh, places in Africa being burned to death, uh, seen videos of this uh, for their faith in Christ. You know, you don't, you, you really have to believe you're a believer to be burned alive. Um, yeah. I was in Sri Lanka once also on a mission trip and I'm on the beach looking at the Indian Ocean <laughs> and these young guys come up, sort of like Greg about his height and about his build and there were a couple of them and the one guy came up and put his arm around me and I thought, oh no, he's going to stab me. <laughs> and he, he had a uh, telephone and he took a selfie and uh, <laughs> I'm sure he wanted to have a picture of a white guy and uh, so a gray-haired white guy <laughs> yeah and then he went on his way thank you thank you that you didn't stab me <laughs> thank you Greg by the way that you don't stab me you know when you hug me you know <laughs> Yes. Oh, and again. So what uh, percent of American Christians you would say are actually saved? Boy, it's a small percentage. As Greg was saying, like 60% of people claim to be Christians, but when, the, when you ask them very direct questions about the deity of Christ, the uh, atoning work of Christ, all of their answers are very, very uh, shallow and uh, aren't biblical, I would, I would say it's, it's probably a very much smaller percentage than 60% that are truly born again. Do you think that would, uh, do you think that's normal for, uh, for most people that claim to be Christians not to be Christians throughout history? Is that something that's, has been created in our uh, modern culture? Well, you know, I think that throughout church history, there's always just been a remnant and even with, uh, you know, prior to the Reformation, there was a thousand years where basically the gospel, the doctrine of justification was unheard of, basically. Uh, Alistair McGrath, uh, the Oxford historian, has written a book about this, the doctrine of justification. And he said for a thousand years, basically from the time of Augustine to the time of Martin Luther, he says, you'll have to look hard and long to find anything written about justification. That doesn't mean that people weren't saved. It's just that the idea of justification just was, uh, just was not front and center at all. And so for a thousand years, and there, there were little groups of people. Uh, God always has a remnant of people who are saved. Uh, like, for instance, the Waldensians might be considered that. But uh, it was always a small percentage. In the early, for the first four centuries, I'm sure there were more. Um, but even as we go into the medieval ages, 
that number was declining. And then with the Reformation, Martin Luther coming front and center with the doctrine of justification, there were a number of people that got saved, but pretty soon that began to wane as well. Uh, the Great Awakening that happened in our country and in Europe in the 1700s, there were a great many people that came to faith, but then that began to wane as well. And even in our own country, I mean, I'm, I'm of uh, like the 60s, there, I think there was a great sort of revival in those times, and, but I think that's sort of waning as well. You know, this is sort of interesting, uh, listening to John MacArthur, as I said, uh, Robert Schuller was the first uh, guy that sort of promoted this um, seeker-sensitive type of thing. And I remember reading in one of his books where he said, the worst thing you could ever tell a person is that they're a sinner. Like, well, really? Wow. Because you see that goes against our positive thinking and so forth. And so he built the Crystal Cathedral and attracted you know, thousands of people. That church is not even in existence today. It's been taken over by a Catholic church. And uh, so there you go. <clears throat> but, you know, th I guess sort of the worst it becomes, the good news is we're that much closer to the king and the nations on his shoulders. Um, his question about, like, people who claim to be a Christian um, kind of got me thinking with, like, the Charlie the Evangelist guy. And um, that's kind of just, you know, a lot of these things are case-by-case -case basis, but I was just curious if you had um, thoughts on, because sometimes I wonder how to go about evangelism with someone who says, yeah, I'm a Christian, I go to church, or, you know, I, I believe in God or whatever. Do you go about that differently than someone who says, I'm not a Christian, or is it kind of just the same basic structure, or, you know, what your thoughts on how to go about that? Yeah, you know, very good question. I'll get to you, Jake, next. Um, you know, because people, you know, again, you ask the question, if you were to stand before Heaven's Gate and God were to say, why should I let you in? Most people are going to say, well, it's something that I've done. And um, so one of Charlie's favorite illustrations is, okay, you're going to stand before a holy God on your own merit, right? Not the Jew, but the person that you're talking to. And they go, yeah. Um, and he says, okay, so what if... We put everything you've ever said or everything you've ever done, put it on a DVD, and then we're going to put it in, and everybody in Wells Fargo Arena is going to watch your DVD. Would you want them to watch it? What do you think people are going to say? Nobody wants to, you know. If we don't want our lives to be declared before people, how much before a holy God? And um, most people's response, by the way, is not biblical. doesn't mean necessarily they aren't saved, but most people's response, they'd have a clue that I need to have Christ's righteousness. They might say, well, I believe in Jesus, but of course, who is the Jesus that you believe in? So you sort of have to point out to them that whatever you're relying on ain't going to work before a holy God. And people get it. It's like nobody wants to have, nobody has ever said, I want my DVD to be played in Wells Fargo Arena so that everybody can see it. Nobody ever says that. You see? So does that answer your question? Jake. Sort of picking up, uh, picking up where uh, Zach left off, <clears throat> the idea that uh, um, people that are deluded, that think they're in Christ, but they are not, 
Um, as much as I hate to see it, it is hard to be in the world, in the in a place at the same time it's happening, when um, Christianity becomes less favored, less cultural, when the persecution at whatever level gets turned up. I tend to, I tend to think that that sort of helps burn off some of the uh, this you know the seeker sensitive. Um, health, wealth, and that sort of thing. There is no health and wealth when there's um, real persecution. I think it tends to sort of out those who perhaps were deluding themselves. Um, I've read a, a, a little bit of some of the accounts of some of the early saints, you know, who were facing persecution early, earlier in the church. There wasn't a lot of benefit on this earth for them. There was really only suffering, and I tend to think that, you know, there were probably fewer self-delusional Christians at that point because it's kind of like you're not going to get popular or wealthy or get to be part of a church that's thought of as a big cool social club you know because what what you may very well get is losing life or property for the sake of Christ and I think that that probably drove out a lot of the people who maybe thought they were Christians but were not and you hate to see that happening but when that pressure and that heat gets turned up a little bit it may, um, there may be people who thought they were Christians who have to reevaluate that, and um, that may lead some of them who had fooled themselves into finding real genuine faith. Yeah, right. The quintessential example of that is actually Judas, uh, who thought he was saved. Uh, I mean, he's marching around with Jesus for three years. And, you know, uh, by the way, Peter says, make sure of your election. You know, Paul says to the Corinthians, make sure of your salvation. Um, because there have been people who have professed, got it all right, A plus, theologically, and chucked it all. It's like, that's scary, because uh, that could happen to every one of us. And so how do you know that you're saved? Well, as you were saying, Jake, the sufferings that you go through, like Job's wife says, why don't you curse God and die? Job says, no, God gives, God takes away, blessed be the Lord. And uh, so as you go through suffering and you continue to profess Christ is a great sign that you are born again, not just because you got everything right on a theological test. Greg. Actually, Jake's question and, and your answer, for the most part, answered what I was going to say. I was, I was going to say, is there any encouragement, admonition that you can give to, to us? Here we are, a group of, you know, men and women and, and babies. Thank the Lord for the babies. Um, who, who are here at church, and we've heard the statistics, 60%, et cetera, and we've heard of those that have been self-deluded into thinking that they are saved, um, and, we, and we, see, we all see that around us, but you mentioned earlier reading your Bible and prayer. Is there anything beyond that, and maybe that's all that there is, that, 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 that we can be encouraged and admonished with, and you just mentioned, so I should say that as well, uh, sharing your faith and that being a, a great example of, of getting beyond just the Christianese or, you know, I go to church, sort of, um, you know, I think I'm saved, and okay, put your faith into action. Any, anything beyond um, what you've already said that, that can kind of encourage and also admonish us to, um, to work out our salvation? Right. Good question. Um, no, I would say that um, it's the the question isn't so much you know how many people you have or what your budget is. The question is always bringing a church onto maturity. That's the ultimate goal. That's really the Great Commission. 
go into the world and baptize them, teaching them to obey everything I have taught you. The Great Commission just isn't about missions. It's about bringing people onto maturity. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul says this, I make it my ambition. Now, here's the great evangelist. He says, I make it my, to make the word of God fully known so as to bring you on to maturity. Because that's the key. The churches need to be brought to maturity so that the, the strong are getting stronger. And then they become sort of a light to other people as well. And so, and, and as Paul says, I want to make the word of God fully known. So it, it all begins with that. And Martinsdale has this great history of making the word of God fully known. And so that is of great encouragement to you at Martinsdale is that you have this heritage and you continue it on with Jeremy and Daniel and the elders, that this is sort of the immovable place. And uh, it doesn't mean, and we're always having to reach out with the gospel, um, but there is a great foundation there for bringing the church onto maturity. You know, uh, when I was starting out in the ministry, Joel was my mentor, and I said, Joel, do you have any wisdom for a young guy just starting out in the ministry? And he shocked me by his response. He said this. Don't ask him because he won't remember. <laughs> but this is what he said. He said, don't waste your time on people who are going nowhere. He says you'll get burned out. He says, invest your life in people who want to grow in Christ. Now, it didn't mean by that that you ignore those people. Joel loves everybody, but that you invest your, your life into people who are wanting to grow because, you see, that's the foundation of the church. And so many of the seeker-sensitive churches, the people who really want to grow aren't being matured. And so the, the church remains on this shallow level year after year after year. Uh, you have to invest your life into people who want to grow and make them more mature. And as you make them more mature, other people are going, hey, what's, what's up with Joe Blow? You know, he was just a schmuck like me, and now all of a sudden he's more mature. I want to be like him. And uh, it creates the growth within a church. And so keep on keeping on. It doesn't mean that Martinsdale is perfect. No church is, but you have the right foundation. Yes. I just wanted to amen that and say yes. In our, in our reading of the Bible, it's also the truths. Do we, do we accept the truths that we're reading? Are we accepting what we're learning you know, here on, on Sunday mornings, what's revealed to us? I think that that's how we go beyond just those that are the 60% number. We're not just here hearing, but we're hearing and obeying, and, yes. we're, and we're asking the Lord to help us to, to obey. And when we find truths that, like, like Isaiah realized about himself, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. When we, when we see that, we don't just throw that aside we ask the Lord, and, and through his spirit, he, he right. gives grace. You know, uh, E.J. Young, uh, I, our time is up here. E.J. Young, one of the greatest uh, commentators on the book of Isaiah, says that this was not a conversion experience for Isaiah. This was a sanctifying experience for Isaiah. So it's good, by the way. You know, one of the reasons, do you like to read your Bible every day? No, you don't. Uh, if, you know, don't, don't lie to me. I know you don't because we're reminded of God's holiness. And so it repels us. And so we have to discipline ourselves to get into the word, to see his 
atoning work. So that's what draws us more and more towards him. Um, but anyway, I was going to say something else I forgot. Um, uh, thank Martinsdale uh, Church for letting me preach. Um, Carol and I, I work for Interim Pastor Ministries, so I fill in where uh, churches are looking for a pastor. Yeah, where angels fear the tread. And uh, so our next assignment, we're actually going back to St. Louis, where we've been for 15 years. And so uh, we are starting in June for at least one month and maybe for a year. Uh, so you won't see us uh, very much for a while. But our home base is always going to be in Winterset. So we're always going to annoy our kids and grandkids and be around. So. Uh, uh, God bless you as we move on to new territories. Thank you.